Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in April. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 1893, a deputy sheriff knocked on Matilda Jocelyn Gage's door in Fayetteville, New York. He had come to arrest her. All the crimes which I was not guilty of rushed through my mind, she wrote later, but I failed to remember that I was a born criminal, a woman. Her crime? Registering to vote. The verdict? Guilty as charged. And uh, this is uh, from a book, Born Criminal. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, radical suffragist. The author is Angelica Shirley Carpenter. Uh, She goes on to write here, Uh, that Matilda was actually pleased to be arrested. She welcomed attention to her cause, women's rights. She was a famous leader in the early women's movement, a writer, organizer, speaker, planner, and historian. She worked closely with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but today she's mostly forgotten after those so-called friends wrote her out of history. And Angelica Shirley Carpenter writes, I hope my book will help write her back in. We have Angelica uh, Shirley Carpenter with us uh, for the hour. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. Um should mention uh, a bit of your biography. Angelica Shirley Carpenter has a master's degrees in education and library science from University of Illinois. For 16 years, served as director of the Palm Springs, Florida Public Library, where she founded BookFest of uh, Palm Beaches, an annual literary festival. In 2011, she retired from the Arnie Nixon Center for Study of Children's Literature at uh, California State University, Fresno. Currently resides in Fresno, is active in the International Wizard of Oz Club, the Lewis Carroll Society of North America, and the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. So, a lot going on. Appreciate you taking some time for us. Oh, thank you. It's fun. Uh, I should mention, uh, we'll get into this as we go along. Not only is uh, uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage a fascinating figure in American history, uh, in women's rights, she's the mother-in-law of L. Frank Baum. Yeah, and that's how I found her. Okay. Um, I was always an Oz fan, a childhood Oz fan. I loved L. Frank Baum. And in the 90s, my mother and I wrote a middle grade biography of L. Frank Baum, who wrote the Oz books. And that's kind of what put Matilda on my radar. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of a Forrest Gump uh, deal here. It's, uh, she's, she was everywhere. She was. <laughs> um, maybe we could start with this question. You treat this uh, well-known at the time. Right, there was kind of a triumvirate: Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage was right up there. Why don't we know about her today? Well, she, first of all, she didn't seek personal glory. Certainly not as much as Anthony did. Um, she didn't write an autobiography. Her children didn't write books about her, and these things happened about Stanton. Wrote an autobiography. Your kids wrote about her. But um, I think the real reason is she and Susan B. Anthony always had a kind of a rival relationship. Even though they were friends and colleagues and worked together, they were also rivals, especially in Susan B. Anthony's mind. And they just kind of clashed over several different issues. Um, Matilda was generally more radical than Anthony. And Anthony wanted to be the star of the women's movement. And so after Matilda died before Anthony did and before Elizabeth Cady Stanton did. And they went on writing and working after she died, and they just wrote history with her left out. Mm -hmm. But they did it to her while she was alive, too. For instance, all three of them worked together on this book called A History of Women's Suffrage. And even while, I mean, one time when they they were, excuse me, they were at a convention, uh, she was sitting right there in a chair, and um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony talked about the book as if they had written it and didn't even mention her name. Mm. 
Also, if they would do newspaper interviews, they would talk as if she were not involved in the book. And Susan B. Anthony sometimes um, stole Matilda's writing, signed her own name to it. She really wasn't the writer. And Matilda felt like that, deprived her of not just fame, but her income, because her income was from lecturing, and you know she had to have her name out there. So Susan B. Anthony, also Matilda thought Susan B. Anthony cheated her out of money on the book deal. So there were a lot of reasons. They never stopped working together. Um, Matilda always admired Susan B. Anthony and said, um, you know, it's a shame she just can't be satisfied with the good deeds she's done because she's done wonderful things. I don't know why she has to take mine. Um, So really, I don't know that they plotted together to write Matilda out of history, but they did. They wrote history. I mean, history is written by the, the people who survive and the winners who write about it, and they just wrote history without Matilda. Mm. What do you think we miss when Matilda Jocelyn Gage is written out of the women's movement? Well, you miss a lot of who really was the backbone of organizing it. Um, Anthony and Stanton were both stars on the lecture circuit, as Matilda was too, but to a lesser degree. She was the one who organized the conferences, who, um, for instance, she established a structure for the New York State Women's Suffrage Association. She started it up. She told the women how how to begin to compile lists in their counties, alphabetical order, and she said, now don't pick people with big names, pick people who will do work. And she developed this state structure, and she was convinced it would work, and it did. And then she went down to Virginia and implemented the same state structure there. So she did a lot of the backbone work of the National Women's Suffrage Association. And she was president for a year, and um, she was just always chairman of the, um, oh, I forget the committee, but the organizing committee. Mm-hmm. She she was like the planner. She was a real expert in civil disobedience, which was one of their tactics. And so, like, for instance, she filed a bill. She had her representative file a bill in Congress to restore her voting rights, which, of course, she'd never had. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work, but women all over the country had their congressmen file bills to restore their voting rights. And it got a lot of you know, publicity for the cause. Mm-hmm. So she just had a lot of strategy and hard work. And she was a wonderful writer, too. Yeah. Uh, the title, Born Criminal, that's included in that anecdote at the beginning yeah. of the book, right? The, the deputy sheriff comes to arrest her, and the, the crime is that she had attempted to vote. Right. Um, so I think, we've, I think we forget. We're c- coming up on the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, right? Uh, we forget what the... State of women was, and they, they, they had absolutely no rights. Um, to her, they were political slaves. Women were in the control of their fathers until they mar- married. Um, it was expected that they would marry. They couldn't vote. They couldn't serve on juries. They couldn't own property. Married women couldn't sign contracts. Whenever Matilda would have a contract to sign, like renting a hall or renting a rooms, Susan B. Anthony would have to come from wherever she was and sign the contract because only single women could sign contracts. Um, they just and, and they had no rights to their children. That was one of the more shocking things. If a marriage ended, the man got the children. So they worked decades. And they did change some of these. They got the property laws changed in New York, at least, so that married women could own property. And I mean, they had an impact even in their lifetimes, but they didn't see the vote. Uh, 
What were the arguments against uh, specifically uh, women's suffrage? <laughs> They're so amazing. It's hard to um, even believe. Um, let me read you a little passage about the, uh, the, the first conference she attended was in Syracuse in 1852. And at that time, Voting was so controversial. They almost they they put it in two categories. They they would talk about rights for women, and then they would talk about votes for women, because some people wouldn't support voting. Don't ask me why they were. They thought it would harm them physically. That it went against nature. You know that they'd be giving birth on the floor of the Senate. Um, crazy things. This is from a newspaper after that um, 1852 conference. The Syracuse Daily Star said. Perhaps we owe an apology for having having given publicity to the mass of corruption, heresies, ridiculous nonsense, and reeking vulgarities which these bad women have vomited forth for the past three days. That was a pretty typical reaction. They thought the women were satanic, um, atheists, hermaphrodites. They called them everything. So one of the insults was strong-minded women. I kind of like that one, you mm. know. <laughs> <laughs> but they it, it's almost beyond our our ability to imagine what an uproar this caused and how they were attacked yeah i wonder if you could read another uh, uh i i marked this uh, page 97 okay um so this is what matilda jocelyn gage wrote I think she's engaging in a little bit of hyperbole here yeah, i believe she is. i hope but but still it illustrates uh, you know, the, the point that we're making here. Right. What is to be done with women, Matilda asked? They will persist in being born. The old heathen fashion was to bury the unwelcome female infants alive, throw them to the crocodiles, or expose them to die of cold and starvation. I am not quite sure, but we had better return to these customs. It is quite certain they cannot all marry, and many who do marry are not only compelled to support themselves, but also a husband and children. We do not want to pay them good wages. We do not want them to govern themselves. In fact, we don't need them, so many of them in the world anyway. There has been a mistake made somewhere, and I am quite sure it is in women's being born at all. Hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, you know, she's. I don't know how much over the top she was there. I mean, she's expressing a, a you know, a view which was rooted in in the laws and the customs and the right. And and unlike Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and the other leaders of the movement, she always thought about working women. I mean, she always thought about the women who worked in factories and had nowhere to live that was safe. Um, she thought about prostitutes. She felt that prostitution was an economic issue, that the women had no training, no no education, and no chance to work in professions that paid well. So she, whereas many people in the movement saw it as immoral, you know, and saw the prostitutes as wicked, Matilda always sympathized with them, and always with working women. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was not the case in other parts of the movement. No, the it was kind of a middle class movement. Middle class. Um, the Anthony and Stanton were both educated. Um, all of them. People say I'm ruining their impression of Susan B. Anthony, and mm -hmm. I don't like to do that. But truly, Matilda was much more egalitarian than either of them. When they were campaigning for women's rights after the Civil War, uh, there was a movement then to say that African American men should get the vote right then, and they did. Um, Matilda thought everybody should get the vote, but 
Stanton and Anthony, in their bitterness about this movement for the African-American men, denigrated them, said bad things about them, and also, you know, really said bad things about immigrants and uh, uneducated people. Matilda thought everybody should have the vote. Mm. Uh, brings up an interesting point. We we tend to, I guess, once a movement is successful, then the iconography begins, right? Then we... Uh, then we want to whitewash, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, airbrush out the blemishes of the founders of the movements. It's, mm-hmm. But it's probably healthy for us to realize Susan B. Anthony and, uh, you know, um, Matilda Jocelyn Gage had a running disagreement. There were disagreements in the movement. Yes, you know, I think that's bad true things in any happened, movement. you know, and and yet it went on despite those things. Exactly. And, and Susan B. Anthony came to vis- visit Matilda on her deathbed, so... As much as they'd fought, you know, they still cared about each other. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was surprised to learn uh, through, you know, reading your book, um, uh, there was an Equal Rights Amendment way back then. Yeah. We still we, don't have it. We still don't have it. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, looking for the vote, but also, you know, uh, just complete Just equal, equal rights. rights. Equal right. pay for equal work. Um, Matilda spoke out often in, in support of a woman's right to control her own body, for instance, not to be raped by her husband. Um, anybody who was talking about birth control in public in those days or mailing information got arrested. And there was birth control, you know, that there were ways to prevent people from getting pregnant, but it was illegal to talk about it or mail information about it. So she always spoke very frankly about these issues, which may have been one of her um, what issues with Susan B. Anthony. It's not that Anthony didn't believe those things. It's just she thought it kind of detracted from suffrage. She, she thought suffrage, suffrage, suffrage. And Matilda and, and Stanton, too, both thought suffrage was the means to equality in many, many areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a disagreement, apparently, about uh, religion. Yes, and there? same thing. Um, Matilda felt that religion had oppressed women for decade, for, for centuries. Um, and, and she was a very good historian. She wrote a, a wonderful book called Woman, Church, and State, which began with um, church-controlled societies oppressing women, and then as the, as the societies became more secular, they just, the laws took on the same um, oppression of women. And she really, I mean, she took it right up to the present time. When she wrote that book, which was in 1893, she wrote about the legal age of consent for sexual activity. In Connecticut at that time, it was seven years old. So this was a shocking it is t- today that's shocking. Um, Susan B. Anthony just didn't want that kind of shocking news associated with suffrage. But but Matilda got, this was one of her great coups. Um, she donated a copy of her book to, I think, Fayetteville High School, where she lived in New York. And a school board member sent it to Anthony Comstock, who was the head of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And he threatened on the front pages of newspapers to arrest anybody who gave it to a child. So he wasn't worried about the seven-year-olds getting raped. He was worried about that people might read about it, you know. Matilda loved it that Anthony Comstock condemned her book. She was hoping that the Pope would condemn it, too, but I guess he didn't know about it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the women at the head of the movement also, you know, others, you know, toiling in the trenches— uh, did know the value of, of uh, this kind of publicity. 
Oh yes, right? they they counted on it, and and Matilda, you know, they had demonstrations, they had petitions, they got petitions with hundreds of thousands of names on them and delivered them to Congress constantly. <laughs> yeah. Year after year, they marched them in, and um, you know, they had meetings and they introduced bills and. They just never stopped. They did it on all fronts. Yeah. I was interested to learn about the, uh, the, the celebration for the Statue of Liberty. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell me about that. What was... Well, that was, one, that was one of the, my favorite things I learned about doing the research for this. They, Matilda and her friend Lily Devereux Blake, who was also active in the National, um, were very active in the National, I mean, in the New York State Women's Suffrage Association. So when they found out that the Statue of Liberty was going to be a woman, they thought that was pretty funny because women had no liberty in the United States. And they applied to speak at the dedication to make a point that women should have liberty. And they were, of course, turned down. But there was going to be a boat parade out to the statue. And they did get permission to, if they could get a boat, be in the boat parade. Well, the only boat they could find was a cattle barge. It was a two-story cattle barge and uh, rented for $100 a day. And they raised the money, and uh, the captain promised them that he would clean the barge before they got on it. He would clean the, scour the boat, but he didn't. So when the day dawned and the women gathered on the pier in New York to get on the boat, some of them were overcome by the stench, <laughs> and they refused to board. But Matilda, uh, she had a cow at home, so I guess she wasn't too upset, and she and 200 other people got on the boat. They sailed out to the statue. They anchored this little cattle barge between, between two big warships right at the foot of the statue. Just by accident, they got a good place, and um, they yelled through megaphones. And mm. the really fun thing for me is I have a picture book coming out about this in 2020. I mean, mm. I just could not get these images out of my mind, and <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> What, uh, how is the work done? Uh, you know, you, you, you get pieces in the newspaper, I imagine. You write books. You go on speaking tours. What, what is, how, is the, how is the work done? Yeah, you, you just nailed it all there. And conventions. Mm -hmm. um, newspapers were so different in those days. You know, that was social media in those days. And they were, there were so many newspapers. Even little towns had two or three newspapers. And they were quite... The articles were quite lengthy and detailed. Matilda grew up near Syracuse and um, was always around the Haudenosaunee Indians. And the newspapers covered both the European culture and the, the Indian culture. So she knew a lot about them. She knew a lot about their their um, theory of democracy in which women had many more rights. The Indian women had many more rights than the um, women in the United States. So that's just an aside. But... She wrote for newspapers from San Francisco to New York. Um, she wrote when, when in Fayetteville, the little town where she lived near Syracuse, um, they had a, a bunch of arrests for prostitution. And, of course, none of the men involved got arrested, and they were all prominent people in the town. And she wrote to them and protested and just constantly writing. And not just her, but, you know, all over the country women were doing this. Mm. And uh, I'm guessing that progress is slow. Yeah. <laughs> but but you, know, you, you do gain adherence to the cause, mostly women. Were there men that supported there the cause? There were men, too. Um, at first, they were ridiculed and reviled, okay? It was just insult after insult. But as time went on, they began to get a more serious hearing. And I don't have the passage marked, but one newspaper said after a convention, you know, 
someday somebody is going to take this seriously. And eventually they did. They had a very hard time getting in to testify before um, Congress and special committees, but they did eventually get to testify. And um, I know um, Senator Sumner was so impressed with their testimony and their, their seriousness and, you know, Everything they did built on everything else, and and they just sort of made respect for themselves. Uh, what do you think was the what was tipping point or tipping points? Eventually, critical mass, right? A, a very close vote. You know, it came down to Tennessee to for yeah, the constitutional right. amendment. But right. uh, what, what? Well, I think by that success, time, by the twentieth century, everybody knew it was going to happen. And they just didn't know when. And I think Woodrow Wilson did not want it to happen on his watch, but um, he had to give in because the movement had just taken on. And I think his daughter was influential in influencing that, too. Um, I think, you know, I don't know, Grover Cleveland, he was just awful. When he left office, he wrote articles about how bad, what a bad influence women's clubs were and um it took women out of the home and took them away from their responsibilities, and they should just not be doing that. So it didn't happen on Grover Cleveland's watch, mm-hmm. but but everybody knew that sooner or later women would get the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the truth is so self-evident, that kind of thing. What mm-hmm. uh, That's that, that's why it reached critical mass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are, if you just joined us, we're talking with Angelica Shirley Carpenter. Uh, she is author of an interesting book, Born Criminal is the title, subtitled Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Radical Suffragist. Uh, she was right there at the forefront of the women's movement, uh, the battle for suffrage, women's suffrage, uh, but died earlier than her compatriots and was essentially written out of history. Um, and Angelica Shirley Carpenter one of our purposes here is to bring her back. So that's right. what we're doing. By the way, before we uh, go to a break, um, suffragist, the, the appropriate term, not suffragette. True. Suffragette was considered demeaning by the suffragists that I wrote about. But I didn't even know that till I started writing the yeah. book. And today it's kind of we kind of go back and forth. Right. But but suffragette but again, was a was a it was a bad term back. Then. Yes. What were you going to say? forgot. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll recover that uh, okay. possibly in the, in our next segment. Uh, when we come back, I want to get into uh, some of um, Matilda Jocelyn Gage's life, interesting life. Very. Including uh, her parents' home was a stop on the Underground Railroad. It was. Hers, Just too. Inter- and hers, too. Yeah. All right. Interesting. And uh, don't forget, we'll, we'll get talking about Wizard of Oz, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, if she's not interesting enough. She's L. Frank Baum's mother-in-law. Right. And encouraged him to, to write his uh, Wizard of Oz series. Um, much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. On the next On Being, Rabbi Amichai Laulavi on engaging tradition while reinventing spiritual life and the very meaning of we. How to be cheeky without being cheesy and how to be profound, how to bring the sacred. I think we're, we're starving for the sacred. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday afternoons at 5 on Utah Public Radio. Have you ever felt anxious walking into a room full of strangers? All the time. What if you could reframe all those anxious feelings into something different? 
I can sense my heart beating, but I definitely feel the surge of energy that is encouraging me to engage. Ideas on how to be better, that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in April. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our second segment here with Angelica Shirley Carpenter. We're talking about an interesting figure, a prominent figure in the the, uh, women's rights movement from the 19th century, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. And uh, Angelica Shirley Carpenter has written a book called Born Criminal. Um, and you say just to just to reiterate, Angelica Shirley Carpenter, Matilda Jocelyn Gage would have been well known at the time. Oh, she right? was very well yeah. known at the time. But uh, she died earlier than Susan B. Anthony, for example, and uh, and uh, the, the histories that came out didn't include Matilda Jocelyn Gage. It's true. I think many times um, with movements like that, there's one person who's identified. You know, Martin Luther King for civil rights, or uh, Cesar Chavez for the workers movement in California. But I think more and more now, people are looking at other people who are involved in the in the movement. And the New York Times recently had a big article about African American women suffragists who had been involved at the time when Matilda was. She knew Sojourner Truth and respected her very much. But, you know, I don't know a lot else about what she knew about I knew there were African-Americans involved in some of the conferences she put on. Yeah. But so they're looking in, many people are looking into different aspects of the movement, different movements. Too. Yeah. And Matilda Jocelyn Gage is so interesting, uh, so I'm glad you're uh, bringing this history to us. The book is uh, Born Criminal. That refers to the fact that, uh, as, as she said, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, I was born criminal, I was born a woman, and... Uh, I, I can't vote, right? She got arrested for registering to yeah. vote. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of, uh, you know, precursors to the civil rights movement. There, so. Oh, yeah, for sure. And she was very interested in civil rights. She was not interested just in women's rights. She wanted civil rights for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into some of her fascinating uh, history, you want to hear about Matilda Justin Gage, the person and her family. Uh, including the the westward urge, what Western fever they yeah, called it, right? right? Which her which her children caught, and that took her uh, west. Uh, I want to talk about uh, connections to Utah. Um, so on the one hand, she felt that organized religion oppressed women. Yes, but she apparently supported. She um, felt the women were not to blame for this. Yeah. She supported uh, Mormon women, I guess. She did, indeed. In 1869, the women's movement split into two movements, um, the National Women's Suffrage Association, that was Matilda and her friends, were much more radical, and they supported Mormon women. They didn't approve of polygamy necessarily, but they supported Mormon women, and uh, when they got the vote, they celebrated, and when they lost the vote, they celebrated. And... Um, the American Women Suffrage Association condemned Mormon women and, you know, thought they were immoral in a way. So the Mormon women always looked to the national for help and for leadership. And the national had an international council of women meeting, I think, in 1888. And, and at least three Mormon women came to that as representatives of a particular movement. So mm-hmm. they, Matilda always respected the women that were involved no matter what the you know whether they were Chinese women or she called them Mohammedan women or mm-hmm. you know whatever the women she supported. Um, 
and, and as you say, there was a split. Uh, some of the prominent women did not support uh, the Mormon women, I guess, because of polygamy. Right, and mm-hmm. they did not support the movement that women should get the vote right then in 1869. They thought women could wait while African American women got—I mean, African American men—got the vote. So they were ready to go much slower and, um, you know, at a more conservative mm-hmm. way of operating. Now, women did get the vote earlier in the West. Yeah, right? they did. In, in Utah, in Wyoming. How was that seen? Was that seen as, uh, I, I, I can imagine if you're in support of women's suffrage, you could say, see, you know, the world hasn't collapsed. Exactly. Well, they <laughs> celebrated. This, you know? Yeah. Somebody, some official from Wyoming went on that um, boat ride with them to the Statue of Liberty, and they celebrated him. I forget what his position was, but like vice governor or something. And uh, yeah, and they celebrated. Susan B. Anthony came to Utah and celebrated with the women here who had the vote. I mean, yes, they they thought it was great that these women had the vote. What about the, I guess, anti-suffragists? Well, they, they didn't like it. There was right, there, yeah. So funny. There are photographs of the anti-suffrage society store or sign. You know, it's like a storefront with a big sign on it. Who could be anti-suffrage? Yeah. But and and there were women anti-suffragists, right? Yes, yes. They uh, thought they were doing just fine. Men took care of them. They didn't need anything from beyond that. Um, it's shocking, really. Yeah. And as we mentioned earlier, the Equal Rights Amendment uh, was proposed way back then. Yeah, like I think in 1870 or so. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about um, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, the, the person. So maybe start, uh, raised in in New York? Yeah, near Syracuse. Always near, lived Syracuse. near Syracuse. Yeah. Uh, her, her parents' home was a stop on the Underground Railroad? Yeah, and that part of New York was a really uh, hotbed of... Um, kind of religious and political activity. They were always looking for new ideas and new reforms. So her father was in on that all the way. He he was for temperance. He was for rights for everybody, women and children, which was very unusual. And he was an abolitionist. So she grew up in that atmosphere. She started taking anti-slavery petitions around when she was 11 years old. So she always was, you know, and her it was her father who taught her that when people criticized what abolitionists, for instance, I, I mean, again, until I read this book, I didn't realize how many people in the North hated abolitionists, you know, supported slavery. Um, and they did things like drag William Lloyd Garrison through the streets of Boston and threaten to hang him. And this scared Matilda that, that somebody would do this to her father. And he said, oh, don't be scared. This just shows that we're doing something right. And that was her whole attitude all through her life. When she met with opposition, which she did pretty much at every step, that just confirmed to her that she was doing it right. Hmm. So when the deputy sheriff shows up at her, her oh, door. Oh, she was uh, thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I guess this kind of a home uh, atmosphere where, you know, we're, we're crusaders. Uh, what point did she take up the, the women's cause? Probably as a teenager when she realized, well, she wanted to be a doctor like her father, and she helped him. She was really a medical assistant when she was a teenager, helped him with surgeries, and really wanted to be a doctor. And, of course, she couldn't get into medical school. So, But even before that, I think she had begun to realize how limited. She couldn't go to college, not just medical school. There were no colleges. Um, So... She, she knew that her life would be limited as a woman. And by that time, she was well ingrained in the abolitionist movement. She, she knew that the techniques, which were meetings, newspaper articles, 
books, like you said earlier. And she knew that what worked in, there wasn't a women's movement when she was younger. She knew that what worked in one movement would work in another. And in fact, all three of these movements, abolition, temperance, and the women's movement, work together sometimes. And they like would have meetings that overlapped so that people could go to these horrible, dreaded, liberal meetings that wanted to ruin society. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the same people would attend all three kinds of meetings. Yeah, yeah. Well, these were, you know, pretty radical uh, uh, or considered radical ideas. But uh, I'm sure that uh, you see pictures. They, they show up and they look prim and proper, right? Oh, they look the, great. <laughs> they were very elegantly dressed, especially Matilda was conservative. She never wore bloomers like some of, a lot of them did, but Matilda never did. Um, but like, for instance, they staged a demonstration on the 4th of July in um, 1876. It was the nation's centennial. There was a big ceremony in Philadelphia at Independence Hall. Of course, they asked for permission to speak up on behalf of women and got told no. So they decided they'd, they'd write a Declaration of Independence for Women and present it anyway. And, um, you know, and President Grant was supposed to be there. He didn't actually show up, but he was supposed to be there. So they were going to give this to President Grant whether he wanted it or not. And, you know, even in those days, there's a lot of security for a president of the United States. But when they went there, it was the vice president who was there. Mm. They came from behind. There was a bandstand behind or a grandstand behind the, the podium. They just um, zoomed up to the podium and gave this petition to the vice president. And the people who could have stopped them from doing that were soldiers and ushers, saw these nice-looking middle-class women nicely dressed and just backed off and let them do it. while they, So they just stormed the podium, gave their petition to the vice president. He actually supported women's rights. He kept it, and he got it framed, and he hung it in his office. Mm, interesting. <laughs> and yeah. then the ladies ran out the back yelling, or not yelling, excuse me, throwing out copies of their declaration as they went. <laughs> and nobody stopped them. But they were ready to be arrested that mm -hmm. day. They really thought they might be. Yeah. But, uh, you know, some usefulness to middle-class respectability. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. <laughs> Use that for, for the cause. Uh, so uh, as a teenager, I guess, she decided, well, I'm, I'm going to enlist myself in this this cause. Uh, would that, did that color who she married, what her, how her home life yes. was, or was that pretty conventional or what? Well, it was pretty conventional. Her husband was also a political liberal, and they, she was only 18 when she got married. She had her first child at 19. So um, her husband was very supportive. He was a storekeeper, but um, he supported her in with money when she was traveling at first. And even though she probably always had help at home, she had four children, and she couldn't have done all that traveling without his support. He, we have letters from him where he writes very proudly that she's in Washington, and he's taking their youngest daughter on a picnic. And, you know, he, he was an unusual, I think, well, I don't know. He's, it wouldn't be so unusual now, but maybe in that time he was yeah. unusual. Would this would have been an, uh, unusual at the time, and the, the husband support the the wife and her work in the cause, mm -hmm. is or, or or I guess it's all all stripes of uh, situations. Yeah, Stanton's husband wasn't too happy when she got into it, but um, I think he came around eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, so at a certain point, um, well, the, you know, the kids grow up. By, by the way, uh, they did send at least some of their kids to college, right? 
they sent all of their all kids the kids to, to college. college. Yeah, and and she had fought so hard to get the girls to go to college. Her oldest daughter became a school principal. Her middle daughter became a teacher. Her son graduated from Cornell, became a storekeeper like his father, and her youngest daughter Maud went to Cornell for two years until she dropped out of college almost over Matilda's dead body to get <laughs> married. Yeah, <laughs> to L. Frank Baum. We'll to get L. Frank Baum. Um, so if you just joined us, we're talking about a book, Born Criminal. Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Radical Suffragist. The author is Angelica Shirley Carpenter. Uh, so before we go to another break, uh, I want to talk about uh, the, the westward trip this family took. I guess the kids first, some of the kids yes. decided to go out to, they got Western fever, as they called it, went out to Dakota Territory. And, and one of the reasons for Western fever was that things weren't going so well with the economy in central New York. Um, I'm, you know, it was just a hard time there. And business was booming in Dakota, and railroads had just reached Aberdeen. And um, yeah, Western fever was a thing. And a- Aberdeen had a lot of people from Syracuse living in it. Um, so one by one, her, her adult children all moved to Dakota. One of them lived on a homestead um, north of Aberdeen, but the other three lived in Aberdeen. And it was quite a thriving town. It had the first electric lights and telephones maybe outside of New York. You know, it was quite a modern, up-to-date town, and and she really liked it. She spent her winters there with her youngest daughter, Maud, and Maud's husband, L. Frank Baum. Mm. Uh, And continued her work there. Oh, yeah. When she was there. Always. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, she went out when just two of her kids lived there. She went out and campaigned for women's rights as South Dakota began its campaign to enter a, as a state, you know, to move from a territory to a state. You know, she didn't win, but she went around the, the state and campaigned and made speeches and wrote letters to the women of South Dakota and to the men of South Dakota, do the right thing, you know. Yeah. At a certain point, um, the, her husband's a store Storekeeper. Uh, shopkeeper. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, store does well for a while, right? Yes, That's how very they put well. the kids through college. Right. Uh, at a certain point, it begins to fail. Yes, and that's, at the same time, mm-hmm. the store started to fail. His health started to fail. Um, she was always worried about money toward the end of her life. And even after they went to Dakota, not all of I mean, they they all struggled. The, the son seems to have done all right. He had a couple of stores in Dakota. But the rest of them really struggled to make a living. And, you know, they had a terrible drought in, in Dakota in um, around 1890. So the, the businesses there weren't doing well either. Mm-hmm. So the same vicissitudes in life that uh – many would, would right. encounter. On top of that, she's doing her other work, right? The yeah. women's suffrage work. Uh, let's take another break. Um, when we come back, I, I want to get to this connection with Wizard of Oz. Very, very, very interesting. Um, you, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? If you were to write a novel, you'd <laughs> well, say... Well, there is a novel you, now. Oh, is there a novel? It's called Finding okay. Dorothy. Oh, okay, great. Uh, but, you know, if you were, if, if you were, if this was totally fictional, you'd say, oh, okay, that's going too far, right? I think uh, so. Some of these things, but, uh, <laughs> but, but this is actual history. So uh, let's talk more about uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. The book is Born Criminal. The author is Angelica Shirley Carpenter. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. Colby Sorensen is 27. Charles Salzberg is 75. Ordinarily, they would not mix. But when they came into the UPR studio, they discovered their life experiences had led them to a very similar place. 
So I grew up in New York City originally, in Brooklyn. A, a guy I just fell in love with, he was so nice to me, a guy named Jamesy, probably the best athlete in the neighborhood. He was a black guy, loved him like a brother. Then when I was 13, we moved to Florida. And then I went to Tallahassee to go to school at Florida State, and it was deep south. I mean, I was just horrified. All I could think of was this guy, Jamesy. So I became a civil rights worker. Just being a naive, you know, white boy from Utah, just very little diversity. In my undergrad, I met one of my best friends named Luis and the other named Jose, and they were both dreamers. Leading up to the 2016 election, I saw a lot of threats to immigrants, some directly targeting dreamers. It bothered me a lot, and I wanted to kind of turn my anger into action. Our new series, One Small Step, premieres in September. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we bring you funky techno and tribal beats, cool combinations of electronic effects with traditional melodies heard in the clubs and lounges of Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Global Groove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast this year in April. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Angelica Shirley Carpenter. Uh, we're talking about her book, Born Criminal, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Radical Suffragist. Uh, want to About 10 minutes left, I uh, want to now turn to the connection to Wizard of Oz. This is... This is so fascinating. She's, you know, prominent leader in the women's uh, suffrage movement. Not as well known now for the reasons we've talked about, but hopefully restore her in, in, in that way. But also, um, she's the mother-in-law mother of Frank Baum. <laughs> so her youngest daughter, Maude, Married uh, meet, meets, this, meets this fellow. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, L. Frank Baum. Well, when, when uh, Maude, the daughter, met him, he was about 25 he hadn't had much schooling. He was from a wealthy family. Um, he'd mostly been educated at home, but not very much. And he was working as a playwright, producer, and star of a musical. And when and Maude was in her second year at Cornell, and boy, Matilda did not think he looked like a good bet for a husband. You know, it didn't look like he was going to be able to support her. She really respected education, and he didn't have any. So she was very much opposed to the wedding, but um, her daughter was just like her and said, well, I'm going to marry him anyway. Mm. So they had the wedding at home, and, and Frank was so charming and so nice, and he really worked to win Matilda over. I mean, at the time he married her daughter, he was a nobody, and Matilda was a nationally known celebrity. So, But he, he really, she came to love him. You know, he just loved her, too. And Later on in life, well, he had many jobs before he got around to writing children's books in his 40s. And um, he used to always tell stories to his four sons. And she loved his stories. And she encouraged him to write the stories down and to try to get them published. So it's fun to think of them. Eventually, um, the bombs moved to Chicago. And again, Miltilda spent a lot of time with them, lived with them in Chicago. It's fun to think of them writing under the same roof. And he's writing fairy tales. And she's writing these really radical feminist diatribes, okay? <laughs> and um, anyway, she was there for the publication of his first book, which was called, children's book, which was called Mother Goose in Prose. And it was based on stories he had told his sons, like, why did the mouse run up the clock? 
and how could 24 blackbirds be baked in a pie? So she celebrated the publication of that book. She, she died in 1898, and The Wonderful Wizard of Oz didn't come out till 1900. So she wasn't physically there anymore, but I think she's there in the Oz books because, you know, look at, in the first book, of course, Dorothy is this strong, brave, American, practical heroine, you know. She melts the witch, she grabs up a broom and sweeps her out the door. I mean, she just, like Matilda, she was doing housework and, you know, fighting for her ideas. And at the end of that book, um, the wizard flies off in his balloon. And in the second, a lot of people don't know there are 14 Oz books by L. Frank Baum. But in the second one, The Marvelous Land of Oz, um, a fairy princess comes to the throne and after that, for the next 12 books, Oz is a feminist utopia ruled by women. And so I definitely think Matilda is there um, mm. one way and another. L. Frank Baum pokes a little bit of fun at her in the second Oz book. He has a character called Gen Ginger, and he has General Ginger and her army of revolt, and they're trying to take over the Emerald City. <laughs> um, and when they knock on the door, the gatekeeper says, you know, what do you want? And, Gen and General Ginger says, we're revolting. They're very pretty, all of them. They're wearing <laughs> uniforms. And he says, well, you don't look revolting. <laughs> so he, Baum had a little fun teasing the feminists, but he really believed in it. He actually kept some of her work in print, you know, had it reissued and republished and stayed on it. So he, he really came to admire her. Mm. Um, so the influence is there. Uh, you, you think, and it, you be inescapable. He admired her. Oh yeah, immensely. Lived in the same house with her right. during periods. I guess through her daughter Maud. Maud would have similar characteristics to her mother. She did indeed. Um, so L. Frank Baum was. How did he start out? Is, did he? He was a storekeeper as well. Was he? Or no. What, he, well, uh, at first he was in the theater. Then, then his uh, play went bankrupt, and he came home and sold um, Baum's Castorine, which was an axle lubricant, whatever that is, um, a family business. Then he moved out to Dakota where he had a store. When that failed, he bought a newspaper. When that failed, he moved to Chicago. And then he began to become a, uh, he became a salesman for a China company. And he actually did quite well at that, but it meant he had to be away from home during the week because he was always out on the road selling China. And it meant he had to lift big, heavy boxes of China. And that's when he did his writing for his sons. When he was on the road, he would write little verses and stories and poems. Mm. And then when he came home, he would read them to the boys or tell them to the boys. So finally, you know, in his late 40s, and with Matilda telling him, write it down, write it down, he submitted it to a publisher there in Chicago and began to get published. Mm -hmm. And after that, he was fine. He, he made a good living. Well, he didn't manage money very well, but his wife, Maude, figured that out and took over the family funds. Okay, very good. Right. Very good. And then they did well uh, from, from there. Yeah. Um, so this started with uh, stories for his, his boys. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, so there were, he didn't, as you said, he didn't start out immediately with the Wizard of Oz no. series. No, I think he had always told stories to his kids, but... Um, you know, according to him, he was in Chicago one day, and I would assume this is after Matilda had died, but he said he was going out one day, and the kids came in at the same time and said, tell us a story, tell us a story, and he just started telling a story about a little girl named Dorothy. 
you know, and the big legend is that he needed a name for the land, and he looked over at his file cabinet, and the bottom drawer was labeled O to Z, so he named it Oz. Mm-hmm. Now, that's probably not even true, but everybody tells that story. I mean, mm-hmm. his wife said that wasn't true, but he used to tell that story to newspapers yeah. all the time. <laughs> that's how it happens, isn't it? You know, yeah. Maybe a story starts somewhere, and the author right. himself picks oh, it up. Oh, he loved to yeah. play tricks on people yeah. mm-hmm. and talk about things in newspapers that weren't necessarily true. Yeah. Oh, did he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, a mischievous dream. Yes, then, yeah. exactly. So uh, Oz, this world, has had such a tremendous effect. It's been so popular. And then, of course, the movie and, uh, and so, you know. We've got Wicked now. And, um, you know, it's going to be a movie, too. And we had the great and powerful Oz. And um, there's just no end to it. But which is good by my standards. I yeah, mean, I'm yeah. a past president of the International Wizard of yes, Oz Club. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so w- what do you think that influence is? What do you, what do you, you know, how has it influenced boys and girls and men and women? Well, they, I think they, boys and girls still love Oz. Um, the Oz characters are like the characters from Alice in Wonderland for Lewis Carroll. I mean, Oz characters represent America around the world. When people see the Scarecrow and the Tidwindman, they think America. So it's just ingrained. You know, we all know lines from the movie. I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, but, you know, there wouldn't have been a movie without the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, it's it's just wonderful, and each new incarnation. Well, some of the some of the incarnations are a little raunchy for me, but because I like my Oz sunny side up. Mm-hmm. But each new thing that comes along just, in, you know, engages children and young people in new ways. I think Harry Potter even led people back to Oz. You know, it, it made fantasy acceptable in a way it hadn't been for a long time, and um, I don't know if that. I mean, because Harry Potter's for an older audience of readers, but. I think Oz just goes on. It really does. So L. Frank Baum uh, died in May of uh, 1914, was it? No, 1919. 19. So he would have lived through the Great War. Yes, I he guess, did. and uh, died uh, just, just, just after that. Uh, this is some 20 years after Mat- uh, Matilda right. Jocelyn Gage. Um, did, he, did he live to see the influence of the books? Oh, yeah. To the the explosion, sure. okay, of, of popularity. For sure. And mm-hmm. his wife, Maude, lived to see the making of the MGM movie. Oh, she did? Uh-huh. She attended the premiere. And that's what this new novel called Finding Dorothy by Elizabeth Letts is about. It's about Maude and the making of the MGM movie, but also about Maude's life from childhood forward. And Matilda's a character in that book. Now, that book is, I would say, heavily fictionalized. But still, it gives you a feel for the atmosphere of the time. I, mm. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I guess bringing it back to uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, what, uh, what do you think she would have thought of Wizard of Oz and the oh, I think she popularity of the series? So proud of it. And um, I think she would have thought, well, boy, I taught that man right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think she would have really liked it. Do you think those uh, influences that you see in the books? Uh, do you think the do you think that has an effect? Uh, the fact that this was a you know uh, kingdom after the second book was ruled by a princess and those sorts of things. I think definitely it did for me. Um, yeah, I do. I think um, you know there's been this theory that boys will only read about boys, but I think plenty of boys read Oz books and um, boys will read an exciting story about. Mm-hmm you know, a, her- a hero or a heroine who's brave and does things. 
Like, yeah, I, I think definitely. Yeah, I certainly did. I loved the, loved the Oz books, yes, as a, as a young man. Uh, so just at the end of the conversation here, what's, uh, what's the biggest takeaway about uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage that you, you want people to? Well, I, I just came to admire her so much. So I, I think people should think about who else, who's in their family that maybe was involved in the women's movement that we don't know about. Maybe they, they can ask somebody. I mean, that's been very interesting to me. People, as I tell them about this book, they say, oh, well, my grandmother got arrested or my great-grandmother got arrested at the White House for demonstrating. So, you know, it's just interesting from that way of thinking. Um, as for Matilda herself, I she's really an inspiration to me. She worked till the day she died, never gave up. And this idea of um, if you're meeting criticism or opposition, you're doing something right. You never lose sight of your ideals and you never compromise. Anthony was willing to compromise, but Benhilda never compromised. Um, and opposition just made her stronger. I wish that would happen to me, but mm-hmm. so far it hasn't. Yeah. But. <laughs> right. yeah, may it happen to all of us. Right? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. A good example. Well, uh, very interesting uh, history. The book is Born Criminal, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Radical Suffragist. The author is Angelica Shirley Carpenter. Angelica Shirley Carpenter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're an Oz fan. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Certainly love it. (laughs) Love it. Uh, And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next time on Living on Earth, using guinea hens to control ticks. I haven't seen any ticks on the kids since we've let the guineas go roam around. And my husband, I think, has found one on himself so far. I'm Bobby Bascom, a biological tool to combat ticks. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news and information, statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new UPR app. UPR is only a push of the button away. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Etched Magazine, a visual escape to life across the Southwest. From remote historic places to hidden canyons and open spaces, Etched captures the grandeur and adventure of life in the great Southwest. More online at etchedmagazine.com.